Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And in this episode, we have an old friend of the podcast, Dr. Ian Johnson from Notre Dame University in the US. Now, Ian has been on the podcast many, many times. He's been on this one. He's been on Dan's podcast. And, well, he's fantastic. So we've got to get him back on again. He's the author of the brand new book, The Faustian Bargain. You've got to go out and buy it. It is truly a bargain. But in this episode, he's taken us through his latest research findings. He's the kind of guy who has the most amazing research full on his lap. In this case, it, well, it literally did. He was in the archives at Kew, and he requested the wrong thing. As you do. For me, that's usually a load of boring old Foreign Office documents. For him, it was the water-sodden, blood-stained logbook of a British submarine from the First World War. This history has everything. It has cooperation between the British and the Russian submarine fleets in the ice-ridden Baltic during the First World War. I'll stop there. I don't want to give too much away. But here he is. Dr Ian Johnson on British submarine warfare. Hi Ian, welcome back on the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? Great. Great to be back, James. How many times have you been on History Hit now? I believe this is my third appearance in the last year and a half. Third appearance in the last year and a half. Well, it's no surprise because you are a hit and everything you seem to touch in the archives, I'm going to say, is is gold. I don't know where you find this stuff, but... Um, We've spoken about it in the past, and it sounds like a lot of it is chance. It's like the history is drawn to you, and today is no different. Before you tell us what this history is, tell us about how you found this history or how this history found you. So this project started when I was working on my, my dissertation, my first book, looking at Soviet-German military cooperation. And there was a pretty big British intelligence piece to this story. And as I was requesting documents in the National Archives at Kew, just outside of London, just a historian's paradise, a really, really well-run, organized place. I requested some of the wrong files and happened to stumble across a waterlogged, three-inch thick, leather-bound logbook of one of the British submarines that had been assigned to the Russian Baltic fleet. And the, the log entries were mostly in English, but there were some appendices in Russian. I was very confused what exactly this source was. 
there were water stains, there were blood stains on one of the pages. And, and it, it intrigued me. I spent a, a day, a, probably an ill-spent day, did not advance my dissertation, just poring over this book. And then I returned later to dig into these logbooks in more detail. But just so our listeners know, just how fortuitous this is, because Ian, as you can hear, speaks English, but he also speaks Russian, and he's gone through all of those Soviet archives. And so for this giant leather-bound, waterlogged, blood-stained book to land on your desk is a little bit of... Uh, little bit of kismet isn't it? it it certainly is absolutely okay so you've mentioned there the fact that there are british submarines in the hands of the russians so tell me more why on earth is this the case during the first world war yes it's a forgotten front in the first world war a fascinating one the backstory is that in essence before the first world war began the Admiralty, the British Navy, was considering various options for a possible confrontation with Germany. So Jackie Fisher was the key character in that story before the war. And he looked at the map and concluded that if there was a war that might involve the Russians as allies and the Germans as enemies, one of the possibilities might be to send a large contingent, possibly even the bulk of the Royal Navy, into the Baltic to ferry Russian soldiers to the north coast of Germany. And he believed this might be a way to essentially win the war in rapid succession. It's unclear how seriously he took this, but in, he ostensibly resigned in 1915 over the rejection of this plan by the Royal Navy. So there was this idea about using the Baltic and working with the Russians in some way, shape or form to try to essentially put pressure on Germany from a new angle, from the Baltic Sea. Churchill also liked the idea, and for a variety of reasons, in part because this was kicking around in August 1914, right after the war began, a relatively small flotilla that was based at Harwich was sent to essentially reconnoiter the possibility of sending vessels into the Baltic. And they reported that it was possible. And so in October, a larger contingent of three E-class submarines uh, were dispatched into the Baltic. Their orders were extremely vague. They were told to rendezvous with Russian Imperial Navy to coordinate with them in some way, shape, or form, and if they were unable to do that, to return to England. They made it through the Baltic Straits, which was a very difficult process. There were three passages, two through Danish and one through Swedish waters to enter the Baltic. The Danish ones were mined. The Swedish ones were partially mined. One of the ships did not make it. It had to turn back after suffering damage. So only two sub British submarines initially made it in, in this initial foray in October 1914. They arrived at the location they'd been told to reach along the modern Baltic coast, and they discovered that the Russians had blown up the seaport where they were supposed to arrive. The Germans, they were afraid, were going to take this. In fact, the Germans wouldn't take it for a long time. But in any case, they didn't know what to do. They were ordered to return to England. And essentially, the commander on the spot, Max Horton, in command of the E-9 submarine, said, you know what, we're going to wait here and see if things change. And in fact, they did. He essentially disobeyed orders, waited, and eventually he was told, go meet up with the rest of the Russian Baltic fleet in Estonia and report to the Russian commander of the Baltic fleet, Admiral Essen. And so that's where the story essentially begins, with two British submarines showing up in, uh, in Tallinn and telling the Russians, we're, we're here and we're at your disposal. I won't ask you straight away what happens next, because I want to take you back a step. I don't know much about British submarine warfare, but I do know that at this point, this must be pretty fledgling stuff. How difficult was it to take these submarines and to get them through the Baltic and to evade things like sea mines? Very, yes. So there were very poor charts of the mines that had been laid out. In fact, when 
the first two submarines arrived, the Russian fleet said, oh my goodness, it's amazing you made it here. You went through at least one major minefield on your way and they weren't even aware. The ships themselves were from the E-class, which was relatively new, actually a, a pretty decent design, but it still had a lot of mechanical issues. The three initial ships dispatched, uh, one had had a ton of mechanical issues and had to turn back. And this was a frequent problem, needing spare parts, needing maintenance. And on top of it, the torpedoes they used were extremely defective. So later experiments by the Royal Navy indicated that only 10% of them would detonate on contact. And given that they only initially carried eight, it meant that they, even if they fired all their torpedoes, there was only a, you know, a small chance that any of them would go off after hitting their target. So this was relatively untested technology and getting to the Baltic at all with such ships was quite the hazardous expedition. Okay, in my head, you've got freezing cold waters, you've got a load of submariners in these tin cans with defective weapons. Right? Sounds like a good start. What happens when they meet up with the Russians in Estonia? Yes, so the admiral on the spot, the commander of the Baltic fleet, Admiral Essen, he's an interesting character. He's ethnically German, which maybe complicated his role as the commander of the Russian Baltic fleet. In essence, he was a quite aggressive and quite competent commander, very technically knowledgeable. The problem was the Russians had been crushingly defeated by the Japanese in the Russo-Japanese War not that long before. So his orders from the Tsar directly were, do not have another Tsushima, which was the battle where the Russian Baltic fleet had been largely destroyed. And so his orders were essentially, don't go out of sight of shore, just about. But Essen didn't really like these orders, and, and he was quite willing to use the submarines at his disposal, as well as the gift of these British submarines, to try to strike fear into the German Baltic fleet, which was both much larger and more technically proficient than the Russian fleet was. And I'm assuming that the Germans weren't really expecting the Russians to have any sort of submarine capability. That's right. Yes, they really expected the Russians to stay very close to their ports and essentially stay on the defensive. And German plans anticipated this. So how do the Russians make the most of this? How do they take their element of strategic surprise and use it against the Germans? So the story, in 1914, not much is accomplished. There are too many technical issues. It's not clear exactly how these submarines are going to operate. A number of Russian sailors and liaison officers would end up being assigned to the British submarines. So you have mixed crews. So they were training together and getting used to each other. Admiral Essen's son was one of these officers. In any case, they took some time to get used to, and to each other in practice. But in 1915, essentially, they began to foray out and try to sink German warships with some success. Initially, there were a few uh, German vessels that were either damaged or frightened, essentially, by the sudden arrival of a periscope not very far away. Not a lot of actual victories, but some kind of psychological successes. But then in the fall of 1915, the Russian Admiralty decided that instead of targeting warships, perhaps this submarine flotilla, a mix of British and Russian vessels, should start trying to sink German merchant shipping. And it turned out this was really key because the Germans, of course, were blockaded by the Royal Navy in the North Sea. They did not have access to raw materials from around the world, but they did have one really critical import during the First World War, and that was iron ore from Sweden. So iron ore, of course, and steel was perhaps the, one of the very most important raw materials for the German war effort. And as a result of essentially where the fronts were and lack of access to the international market, Germany had to import between 30 and 40% of its iron ore every year of the war, almost all of which came from Sweden. In essence, 
what was left of the German merchant marine was just steaming back and forth between Swedish ports and North German ports, bringing in vast quantities of iron ore for German war industry. And starting in the fall of 1915, this is exactly the lifeline that Russian and British submarines began to strike. So in the course of October 1915, when there are several additional British submarines that arrive, they had a total of five of the E-class submarines, and there are a number of Russian submarines operating in conjunction with them, they essentially completely shut down the trade in iron ore between Sweden and Germany, to the point where literally the German Admiralty had issued orders for all merchant marine ships, merchant vessels to stay in harbor until they could figure out what to do with the British threat. So not a single ton of iron ore being transported to German shores. So that was the really critical and decisive intervention that the submarines had in the first year of the war. heard of the teenage werewolf prosecuted in 1603? Did you know that the 17th century British government relied heavily on female spies? And do you want to know about chin chucking and thigh sex? Of course you do. I'm Susanna Lipscomb and my new podcast Not Just the Tudors is a deep dive into what I like to think of as the long 16th century. We'll be talking about everything from Aztecs to witches, Velezquez to Shakespeare, Mughal India to the Mayflower. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
So this is like an entire new front in the war, really, because you've got, obviously, a blockade that's going on in the North Sea. It's really difficult for the Germans to get the supplies they need. We know this is something that, obviously, is a classic move against Germany, and it's something that happens in the Second World War as well, and, of course, with the blockade at the end of the First World War. But this is something slightly different, isn't it? Because you're able to almost get in and get under their skin, and iron ore is so important. What sort of impact does it actually have on the German war-making industry? It's a little difficult to measure. There were bottlenecks in other places in German industry as well, but there are a couple of things that we can divine. So one is that in 1916, when there were still iron ore shortages, the Imperial German army would have to recall over 160,000 skilled metal workers and miners from combat units to essentially try to increase German steel production at home, in part because of shortages of iron ore entering the country. That's seven to eight divisions that were essentially pulled off the line just to deal uh, with this iron ore shortage, which was at least in part caused, maybe significant part, by British submarines operating against German shipping. And in addition, it really messed up German naval strategy. So German strategy had been to build a, a very large fleet, their high seas fleet based at Kiel, that would essentially perhaps try to challenge the Royal Navy in the North Sea and, and challenge the blockade. And there was constant debate about when that challenge should be made. It would eventually be made during the Battle of Jutland in 1916. But the reason it didn't happen until 1916 and that Germany remained under this blockade for so long was in part that the German Navy had to keep transferring ships to the Baltic to try to essentially set up convoys and deal with the British threat. So in 1915, when things were at their worst in that fall, the German Navy would have to transfer 70 ships through the Kiel Canal to the Baltic to try to deal with the British threat. So this essentially prevented the Germans from sorteeing and engaging the Royal Navy more directly in the North Sea for at least a year. This must have been such a thorn in the side of the Kaiser. Was there any success on the German side here? Did they manage to have any considerable victories against the British and the Russians, or were they just consistently pushed back? So in total, there would be nine British submarines operating in the Baltic, five of the E-class, which were quite substantial, and then four very small coastal submarines that really couldn't get very far out of sight of land that were actually transshipped along a railway line and reassembled by Russian sailors and engineers. So five pretty substantial submarines interdicting German trade, a number of Russian submarines and other vessels assisting them, mostly submarines. None of the British submarines would be sunk by the Germans during the war. In fact, they would all be scuttled when Russian revolutionaries tried to seize them after the revolution. So in that sense, the Germans never managed to really get rid of this threat. In fact, it was so important to them to deal with the British submarines, even though in 1916, there weren't as many successes, there wasn't as much tonnage sunk, not even close by British submarines. But when Lenin and the revolutionaries in Petrograd began negotiating with the Germans to uh, essentially end the war on the Eastern Front, the Germans inserted a clause requiring that all British submarines and sailors be turned over to German custody before a peace deal could be made, essentially as part of this negotiation. So it was important enough that two years after the worst damage had been inflicted, the Germans saw this as a very serious threat and essentially required it as a precondition for ending the war on the Eastern Front. Wow. So to get rid of them at any cost. Now, Ian, you mentioned the Russian Revolution, which explodes as the war is going on. How does this impact this British-Russian czarist cooperation in the middle of the First World War? 
yeah, it has catastrophic impact on the ability of the British submarines to operate. So I should first note, for the first two and a half or so years of the war, the British submarines were based in Estonia, in Revel, and now Tallinn. There were some tensions with the Russian crews there. So a lot of the Russian personnel were enlisted. They'd been conscripted. They were not treated very well. They were banned from having alcohol. A lot of stores and, and bars had signs up that banned enlisted personnel and dogs from entering, but allowed officers. On top of it, most of their officers were ethnically German. and Most of the enlisted and conscripted were either Ukrainian or Russian. So there were a lot of tensions in port. And the British, who had access to alcohol, which was illegal in Russia at this time, they had access to much better food. There were naturally some tensions. So in part as a result, after the Baltic fleet mutinied in March 1917, as Tsardom was essentially collapsing, the British submarines would pack up. They would take their Russian liaison officers and crew, and they moved to Finland, which was considered more stable, still part of the Russian Empire. So they were now based at what is now Helsinki, and they'd be there for the fall of 1917, during which, of course, the October Revolution took place not very far away in Petrograd. And then this created something of a problem because the Russian revolutionaries headed by Lenin had no interest in British submarines being based on Russian soil. And Finland itself was in ferment and would eventually enter its own civil war. So essentially in March 1918, after, or as it was becoming clear that the Russians were cutting their own deal with the Germans, which would eventually be the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, the commander of the flotilla based in Helsinki at gunpoint essentially pirated a Russian icebreaker. There was a lot of ice in Helsinki Harbor at this point. They used it to break out of the harbor. They took all of their submarines out to a deep point in the Gulf of Riga and they sank them. And apparently some of the mutinous Russian sailors present tried to stop them. And they essentially, the British submariner said that they would blow up all of the shipping in Helsinki Harbor if they were interfered with. So this quite dramatic moment in March, 1918, they then returned to shore. Most of them would escape either north to the British forces that would land in Northern Russia, or they'd try to get out to neutral Sweden or elsewhere. And a handful led by uh, Captain Cromie, who was commander of E-19. He would actually end up back in Petrograd. He would be killed by Russian revolutionaries in the summer of 1918, defending the British embassy. Uh, actually, sailors, people he'd worked alongside who came to attack the British embassy that summer. So a uh, sad end to this long story of cooperation between the British and Russians. Wow. That is remarkable, and it really ties what seems like a small specific part of history into that much broader picture and the legacies that happened after that. Absolutely. Cast uh, some long shadows. What are the legacies of this? Because, of course, as we move through into the Second World War and you think of one of the most menacing sites for an Allied sailor, and that would be a, a wolf pack of U-boats, right? Is this something that is a bit of a legacy? Do the Germans take lessons from just how potent the British use and the Russian use of submarines is? Yes, it, you know, it is. In some ways, it reminds us of the broader U-boat war in the Atlantic, but in miniature, with much smaller forces deployed. But as a percentage of ships lost, in fact, October 1915 was worse than the very worst month in the Atlantic in the First World War for the British. So obviously, there are a lot of lessons to be learned from either side. So Max Horton, who was in command until 1916 of the British submarines, under Russian command, but in charge of all the submarines based in Estonia, he would end up becoming the commander of the Western approaches during the Battle of the Atlantic in the Second World War. So essentially overseeing the war against the German submarine menace 
there and, and arguably with great success. He was did extremely well once he took command, in part because of the lessons he had learned on the other side in the Baltic. An unusual position. There weren't a lot of submariners put in such positions in the First World War. For the Germans, one of their key takeaways was essentially without control of the Baltic, it was very unlikely they could fight and win a long war. In fact, in the Second World War, Germany would be even more dependent on steel and iron ore imports from Sweden as a percentage of war production. More imports were required. This was one of the reasons that Hitler would invade Denmark and Norway in April 1940, was essentially to prevent the situation that had happened in the First World War from happening again. In fact, this comes up in the minutes where they're discussing these operations. The the German Navy was very convinced that only by seizing the straits and, and mining them and controlling Denmark could Swedish iron ore be essentially guaranteed in terms of imports. So it had a lot of repercussions in the Second World War. Perhaps as a, a final note, the British actually planned to do the same thing, to send submarines into the Baltic. Uh, this was something that Churchill was very interested in doing. Operation Catherine was the code name for this. And it in fact was forestalled by the German seizure of Denmark. So a lot of the trajectory of the early days of the Second World War was, was shaped in some way by this experience in the first. Did the Kaiser not think to take Denmark during the First World War? Yes, in fact, it was debated and discussed. And for a variety of reasons, it was not pursued. Concerns about violating neutrality. The Danes did in fact mine their own waters to limit shipping going through. So for a variety of reasons, it was not pursued in the first, but it was considered a mistake by German naval planners on the eve of the second. It is fascinating just how important Swedish iron ore is, because when I was doing the documentary on the Atlantic Wall for History Hit, going through the documents, this is one of the reasons why Hitler was obsessed with the Atlantic Wall, especially up towards Denmark and up into the Norwegian Arctic. You had to make sure that that flank was protected because as soon as that went, you started to interrupt those shipments of iron ore. And once you had that, like you say, you started to have a stranglehold and then your war is almost over. You can't fight a total war without steel. Absolutely. You can't fight a total war without steel. I think we've definitely found the title for your next book. <laughs> so why do we remember Jutland and not this? Well, Jutland is, in terms of the forces engaged, vastly greater. And, and the reality is that the Baltic story was one that was very intense in 1915 and then sort of faded from public memory as the war went on, in part because the Russian Navy begins mutinying in 1916. And essentially, no one is leaving port. And so the story is very important in the early phases of the war, but Jutland is just much more dramatic, much larger scale, and much. And then because it takes place in 1916, I think is, is seen as more memorable. Okay, I suppose that makes sense. Until now, of course, because we're able to bring this to listeners all around the world and really put it back in its, its rightful place in the historiography. I think so, yeah. It's, it's a largely forgotten story, except for a couple of memoirs that have been published about this. So there's essentially been almost no discussion of its role and really its impact on German strategy writ large, which I think is not small. I got one more story to tell you. So Max Horton, who's the first commander of this group for about two years, he got in trouble with the Royal Navy because after he sunk his first ship, he started flying the uh, Jolly Roger pirate flag and he was censored by the Admiralty for claiming the pirate mantle. He was only about 29 years old, so carefree young man. But Carefree young man coming from a man that's not far off 29 years old, so... I mean, it's <laughs> you're a little closer to that than I am, but uh, yeah, doesn't feel like it. Imagine being in the Royal Navy and flying 
the Jolly Roger. You're joining a, a select few people that um, haven't done the Royal Navy any good. It's kind of like mutiny on the bounty territory, isn't it? It is. I got to tell you, though, these submariners, they were very polite. So they didn't usually torpedo people because their torpedoes were so bad. They actually would essentially fire a warning shot. They'd get them off the ship. They'd drop them off on shore. They didn't kill a lot of people at all. They only blew up about four ships. The vast majority, dozens and dozens, they boarded and then usually give them a bottle of booze and, and send them, you know, make sure they got to shore. So they weren't too mean. This is a gentlemanly submarine warfare. It is. Yeah, unlike the Germans, you know, by 1917, the Germans are just sinking everything that floats and the British didn't do that. Though if your torpedoes didn't blow up, you know, you might be more tempted to try to surface too. Maybe that's how we stop wars being so brutal, give people bad bullets for their guns. We can float that at the next Unidir conference on disarmament. That makes sense. <laughs> and having read your article, there is also a Kipling poem. There is. So Kipling wrote a poem in 1916 dedicated to the Baltic submariners in honor of their achievements. By that juncture, they, they were quite well known in the British media and press. So these are the, the lines from Kipling's The Trade. They bear in place of classic names, letters and numbers on their skin. They play their grisly blindfold games in little boxes made of tin. Sometimes they stalk the Zeppelin. Sometimes they learn where mines are laid or where the Baltic ice is thin. That is the custom of the trade. Ian, thank you so much. I can think of no better way to end the podcast. I've got to ask, though, what's next for you? What's the next book coming out? Where can people read more about this as well? Yes, yeah, so this piece appeared in the International Journal of Military History, won their early career prize, so it's free uh, and accessible for anyone who, who might be interested to look at it online. I have a book coming out next month, The Faustian Bargain, Secret Soviet-German Military Cooperation and the Origins of the Second World War with Oxford University Press. Yes, I have had the absolute fortune of reading that book, and it is amazing. Ian also has another episode with us on exactly that issue, so go and check it out. Ian, thank you so much. We'll get you on the podcast again soon. My pleasure. Thanks, James. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.